Hi, Kyle. My name is Sonia. I'm from Argentina. I live in Oregon, and I am about to head to El Salvador for some Thanksgiving waves, hopefully. Anyway, your show is amazing. I really, really enjoyed the episode on plastic pollution. thought it was super enlightening. And your comment on the airport doors almost made me spill my coffee. I had to laugh so hard. Anyway, keeping awesome. Get some waves. Thanks for doing what you do. Hello, Sonia. And hello to all of you listening to my voice. Hope that you're all having a wonderful day wherever you are. Sonia, sorry it took me so long to play that voice memo. Sometimes these things get lost in the shuffle. But I hope that you had a wonderful time down in El Salvador, a place that I know and we- know and love. Uh, I had a chance to go to Las Flores a number of years ago, which is a great right-hand point break, super fun, not too extreme, uh, and went on, went on a trip down there with my big brother, one that I'll never forget, because when we arrived, I forgot board shorts, and the water in El Salvador is in the low to mid 80s. So it's definitely a place that you want to bring board shorts. What happened was I packed my bag and then at the last minute decided that I wanted to take another bag and forgot to take my board shorts out. Luckily, uh, my brother lent me some pairs, so it was not too big of a disaster. This episode of the podcast is with Dacker Keltner and Chris Ryan. Dacker's research focuses on the biological and evolutionary origins of compassion, awe, love, beauty, power, social class, and inequality. He is the co-author of the best-selling books Born to be Good, The Science of a Meaningful Life, and The Compassionate Instinct. He has published over 190 scientific articles and written for the New York Times, the London Times, the Wall Street Journal, Slate, and has received numerous national prizes and grants for his research. He is a super fucking big deal. And uh, I was connected with Dacker through a mutual friend named Hunter Motz, who I've had on this podcast a number of times. And then when I was about to do the show the morning of, I was at my buddy Chris Ryan's house, and um, I said, hey, have you ever heard of this guy? And he's like, Dacker Kellner. I reference him in both of my books, Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death. How did you get in touch with this guy? Uh, And I said, hey, you want to co-host the episode with me? He's like, sure, which I was really glad we did because Dacker and Chris, it felt like they were old friends meeting for the first time. They're both um, really engaged in this argument around who we are as a species and who we were and and really working to smash the narrative that prehistory was nasty, brutish, solitary, and short. They argue that humans have evolved and we have gotten to our place in this world through instincts like compassion and cooperation, which has um, really big ramifications. Um on the way that we treat each other and behave. And I was just freaking blown away that I get to sit in the room with such smart people, to be totally honest. I, I, at times during a podcast like this, just think, how did I get here? And dang, 
how freaking cool. Um, so I was very grateful to be a part of this podcast. For those of you who don't know, Chris Ryan is the best-selling author of Sex at Dawn and Civilized to Death and the host of the wildly popular podcast, Tangentially Speaking. He is the co-creator of The Motherfuckers with me and has had a bigger influence on my life than just about anyone, um, excluding my immediate family. So I'm eternally grateful for Christopher Ryan for always helping me to think more deeply, boldly, and clearly. I'm also grateful to Santa Cruz Medicinals for sponsoring this podcast. Santa Cruz Medicinals makes potent CBD products. You can go to scmedicinals.com to check out their nootropic. You can check out their CBD coconut oil that I use. Dude, I've been using it a lot recently. Like self-massages. You get some of this CBD on your knees and ooh, Nelly. Ooh, Nelly is good. So if you want to get 10% off, you can go to scmedicinals.com. Type in the code name kyle Ten. Get 10% off any of their products. And if you want to get more reading in your life, you can sign up for my box of goodies. So once a month, I will send you a book that I love along with a potent CBD tincture. The tincture is my favorite product that Santa Cruz Medicinals makes. Um, I do a few drops, dink, 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 helps me sleep, helps me get over sore muscles. So if that's something that you would like once a month, if you want to get more reading in your life, if you want to support this show, and if you want to get more CBD, you can click the link below called my box of goodies, and uh, or just go to my website, kyle.surf, sign up, support the show, get more reading in your life. And this month, the book is, uh, it is Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim by David Sedaris, one of my favorites. It is a, it's a light read and will have you rolling with laughter. Also, big thank you to the Nell Newman Foundation for supporting this show. The Nell Newman Foundation supports unpopular, bold ideas, and they support a number of environmental organizations. So you can head over to the NellNewmanFoundation.org, click the link below, and um, if you want to get involved in volunteering, these are vetted organizations that are doing really, really good work. Um, one of which that I want to highlight right now is the Ron Finley Project. The Ron Finley Project is building urban gar- is building food gardens in urban neighborhoods in South Central. I had a chance to interview Ron on this podcast a number of months back, and they're looking for volunteers. They're looking for builders to help style out their garden. Um, so if you're in the LA area and this is something that you'd want to volunteer for, click the link below, uh, Ron Finley Project, I believe, .org. Just click the link below and get involved. And yep, that's that's an ad. I'm not trying to sell you any products with the Nell Newman Foundation. I'm just trying to connect you with good work happening in the world. And uh, as a lot of Dacker's research shows, volunteering makes you happier. So you could argue that it's a selfish move. That's it for now. Uh, you can send me these voice memos to info at kyle.surf. You can check out all of my work at kyle.surf. That's where I have my videos, my podcasts, my written articles. And without further ado, it is my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Chris Ryan and Dacker Keltner. So you're focused on awe right now. Tell me a little bit about that. 
Well, um, you know, I, uh, in my lab, the Berkeley Social Interaction Lab, we work from uh, the perspective that we've evolved a set of emotions that help us adapt to the environment and fold into social communities and survive and do well. Uh, and early in the, the field, people focused on fight or flight emotions like anger and fear, and we know a lot about those. And they'd really, like scientists, had really un left untouched these really interesting spaces of emotion like gratitude and awe and ecstasy and joy. Um, and I, you know, the reason that I study it is in part um, I was really lucky to be raised by parents. You know, my mom teaches literature. My dad's an artist who are like, get out in the wild, swim in the Pacific Ocean. Let's go camping. Let's drive a VW bus through the Colorado Rockies. And I was just raised on awe, you know. And then um, heading into my career, you know, once it was established, I had developed the scientific tools and the background to um, – to study this amazing emotion that mystics have been writing about for thousands of years that <clears throat> had a very prominent role in the age of enlightenment and romanticism in the 18th century. I, I mean, it's, it's foundational to everything and science really hadn't studied it. So we got into the game. Will you be talking about the role of uh, psychedelics, for example, in, in creating that sense of awe and the inspiration, how sort of the psychedelic movement combined with technology in Silicon Valley has given rise to the whole technological revolution? Is that something you're looking at? Yeah. You know, in fact, uh, at Berkeley, we are just launching the Berkeley Psychedelic Research Center. You know, we have Michael Pollan and mm -hmm. Alison Gopnik and me and uh, a few others, Michael Silver, um, to try to understand scientifically what psychedelics do. Um, you know, we know what they do. Um, <clears throat> uh, we know what they do phenomenologically, just how they change our lives and give us a sense of connecting to vast things that we can't describe. And then uh, Roland Griffiths um, did early work on the clinical implications of psychedelics, just helping handle anxiety and so forth that have really opened up the field. And then our work will really get at this idea that the, the core of psychedelics is all, uh, is like this sense of pattern and interconnectedness and the self dies and, and everything that can come out of that. Um, there are, so there, it's the psychedelics, you know, I mean, it's one of the most important things to happen culturally again, <laughs> it's been happening for thousands of years in indigenous peoples. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's really important right now in this moment when we grapple with, you know, why do SSRIs not work that well? How do we handle people with PTSD? How do we help them find meaning? And I think psychedelics are going to change that. So absolutely. It's our next big move. Good. When you set off to write a book about awe, are there a set of questions that you will set out to answer? Yeah, you know, so um, the first question, you know, and it's, it's interesting. It, it, uh, I started to write this book, uh, sadly, when my younger brother died. Uh, he died of a colon cancer. Um, and it was he and I had shared everything together. So it was a very tough, it was a complicated death and it was a very tough loss. 
Um, and the, when he was, um, his life was ending, we were all around him. And I had this awe experience, you know, and it was, I felt like there was light and patterns and I felt like there are forces that he was moving into. Uh, and I'm a reductionist in some sense and a materialist and, a, you know, atheist. And I was like, what is that? You know, why in this moment of profound loss would I feel the sacred and reverence? And that really led me to start writing this book. It's, you know, I have enough data, but I wasn't ready uh, quite career-wise. And I think the first question is, is like, well, what is it, right? What, how do I, you know, and it's interesting because in the world of mysticism and psychedelics, you know, Chris, people are like, I can't describe what happened. You know, it's, it's, it's so complex. So first we have to like, how does science describe this? And then the second question is why, you know, why in our evolution as a, a hominid, did we develop this emotion? And then third is like, how can I, you know, in a moment of grief or a period of grief that I'm still in, find, you find all and recapture what life was about uh, absent my brother, who he and I hiked together and traveled together, went to Mexico together, swam in the ocean together. He was kind of an awe par partner. So those are what I'm trying to answer is what is it and why and how do we get it? That, that story, uh, the story of the origins of the book that you're recounting makes me think about the fact that the word awful has always confused me. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, somehow it's become negative. But my sense is the origins must have been wonderful and awful meant the same thing, full of awe. Right. <clears throat> but also that yeah. awe is not necessarily blissful. It can also be whatever it is. I'm I'm in a town right now. Kyle and Aaron in this little town. It's the only place in North America that has a permit to do open air cremations. And wow. I attended one a couple of years ago. Um, but it's uh, I attended this open air cremation. The woman had died of MS. She was a resident of the town. And so her friends and her family were there. And there's a pyre out in the desert. It was early morning at dawn. And, you know, why, her children lit the fire mm -hmm. and then spoke about their mother for a while. And then her friends came up and spoke. And it was... Whatever those words are, awe-inspiring, awful, wonderful. It was full of, of things beyond description. Um, but I've had the same experience. My father died about a year and a half ago, and I had the same thing. It was horrible, but it was so there was it was so real that it was also nourishing. I don't know if yeah. If that yeah. gets to what you're you're trying to explain there, but like we live in such a plastified bullshit world that anything that strips that away is is amazing. Yeah, no, it, it you know the to your first point, Chris, like the etymology of awe comes out of ninth century uh, Norse of agi, which meant fearful, dread, uh, and a little bit of wonder, right? And when you think about the ninth century. And what humans were facing in terms of plagues and early death, short life expectancies, a lot of violence. Um, the world was full of horror, right? And they had this word. And then as we've evolved culturally, we have gradually reduced the horrors of living. Children don't die young. We have a much lengthened life expectancy, less violence. 
uh, there's still a lot of horror and 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 we've we've built back in the positive dimensions of awe of like you know wonder and you know goose tingling curiosity back to what awe is even our relationship to nature you know um it you know in the last three four hundred years we've gotten outdoors right we used to hear things and um so the words really have changed and that's why awful is confusing and yeah you know what strikes me um one of our human universals in awe is life and death and the obvious one is wow you see a child born you're like geez one minute there was one person now there are two and that's awesome <laughs> and, and dying you know <laughs> You know, dying, a lot of people have Chris's experience of, I was, you know, I remember one woman told me like, <clears throat> I had this beloved sister, she got cancer, you know, went through this process of hospice and I was holding her hand when she died and then I could feel the life go. And it was awesome, you know, and I think, I think what it tells us is humans, horror is different than awe. So genocides and piles of bodies at Holocaust, you know, that Nazi concentration camps, those may astonish you, but they're horrifying, right? Mm -hmm. um, but once you get into the other realm and you move away death, things get awesome, right? Like where does, you know, what is a life and where does it go? Um, so a lot of, I think it's one of the great mysteries is what you just described, Chris. It's like, why does the mind do that when we face death? Can you talk about your role um, working with prisoners and the Sierra Club to um, get them out into nature? Yeah, you know, <clears throat> thanks for asking about that. Um, there, there are two different things, you know. So the first is uh, the Sierra Club. Um, in fact, I'm writing about a guy in my book named Stacy Bear, who was a um, veteran who came back and a lot, like a lot of our veterans from Afghanistan and Iraq was really struggling, drinking too much, uh, suicidal. Um, and he talks about it openly and he, his buddy got him out rock climbing in Colorado and it changed his life. It transformed him. And he called me up and he's like, man, there's this Berkeley guy who's studying awe. You know, this is the key for veterans. Veterans, are often like really courageous and adventure oriented. They're young, they're physical, right? Uh, they like to throw their bodies into stuff and they're being handed SSRIs and cocktails, right? Which is not going well. Um, and Stacy called me up and he's like, hey man, I work at the Sierra Club. I lead tens of thousands of people outdoors on, on uh, uh, outdoors trips, including veterans and under-resourced teens who are poor. And don't get to camp. So we did this study of, of veterans and teens rafting. <laughs> Ironically enough, on the river that I grew up on, the American River, where I used to raft as a high school kid with my brother. And we found my favorite finding in that, you know, we, we measure saliva before and after. We got GoPro cameras. We filmed them. So we measured their, they're like, woo, you know, <laughs> we've got all of that. We've to have a paper on that and um or like whoa or screaming and but um veterans show a 32 percent drop in ptsd symptoms for a week after a day rafting hmm. i mean you can't you know 
you try to move a veteran's PTSD, right? You know, like that, man. That is like, take that to the bank. Uh, the and veterans that, and the, sorry, sorry. The, did the veterans and the teens go together on these trips, or were they separate trips? That, that was a, that's a great question, and you know, they, we really worked hard to curate the trips, um, and the veterans went together separate from the teens. In part, Chris, because some of our veterans, we had one guy, we had one guy who was homeless, you know, as a lot of veterans, there are 700,000 homeless in the United States that'll rise because of COVID, you know, and so, and then one of our veterans was from Vietnam. And so getting on a river, they, we had a lot of kind of guidance and therapy right there because it was hard. And, and then the teens were crazy, you know, the, one of my undergrads who ran the trip, his name Christoph Green, and he grew up homeless, uh, and then went to Berkeley, graduated, doing really well. He's six five. He looks like a linebacker, and he's got these big dreadlocks. And I was like, "What was it like to do the study?" And he had never been camping. It's like, God, it was amazing. But I had to break up splash fights amongst these teenagers. <laughs> <laughs> so we had a special approach to the teenagers. <laughs> right. Because they were teenagers, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You mentioned measuring uh, things like saliva before and after a trip like this. Can you dig yeah. in a little bit more to how you yeah. conduct one of these experiments? Thank you for asking that. You know, and this one, this one was hard. You know, so uh, so we got our you know veterans and teenagers, and that took a lot of work. Uh, we've got our river, right? That we're gonna a, a chunk of the American River. We've checked out, and then GoPro gave us a bunch of cameras. So we mounted the cameras on rafts. So now we've got like 10 rafts, GoPro, GoPro cameras. We, got, we filmed them. And the, I feel like the, um, the key there, you know, it, just to give your audience a sense of science, like, you know, it's one thing to say, you know, hey, you're a big, sur big wave surfer. What's it like for you on the waves? And they say, oh, I, I feel all right. Okay. Kind of obvious. Um, it's another thing to show when you're surfing or rafting, your physiology changes. And my lab has done a lot of work on how awe, our focus today, activates the vagus nerve, which is this bundle of nerves that makes you strong. Awe reduces the inflammation in the body, which is part of your immune system. They're little proteins that attack pathogens in your body that are good. But if you're always inflamed, you're really vulnerable to, you know, like the plastified life that Chris referred to makes your body inflamed. We lose touch with nature and that's bad news for your health. So we, in this particular study, given that orientation, number one is we gathered saliva. <laughs> you know, you got these teenagers arriving at the river and my experience, we bought a special fridge, right? And the teenagers, okay, great, welcome to the study. Now spit into this vial, right? So like, spit. <laughs> it's for <laughs> science. Way, yeah. By the way, like getting enough spit is hard, right? You got like, you know. <laughs> so we got that. And then the, you know, if I showed you footage, you know, and maybe you could post it on your web, your for the show. Um, you know, it's one thing like, oh, I felt awe during the rafting trip. It's another thing when you got them on camera and they're going like, whoa, as they ride through the meat grinder and all these rapids and almost crash into rocks. So saliva, self-report measures, 
to start the study, film them during the rafting trip, and then we follow them up online on their smartphones one week after, like, hey, how are you doing? Are you stressed? Is your sleep disrupted? Are you PTSD? We put that all together and we can get a sense of like, what does a day on the river do to you for you, right? And what we find is you show a lot of awe in the voice and the face, your cortisol changes, you become, you emerge with other people in your raft in terms of physiology, it starts to resemble, you're like, wow, man, we're part of this team. And that all predicts less PTSD a week later, right? So it just gives us a feel of what it's really like. Do you, can you talk, I, you know, I've quoted you, I've written two books and I've cited you in both of them. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> you, you know what it's like, right? Um, uh, the first book is about human sexuality and prehistory, which doesn't seem to have a lot of overlap with your work, but I, I found ways. And the second one is called Civilized to Death that just came out in October, um, nice. which is sort of a reassessment of this, the cost-benefit analysis of civilization, right? Are we actually better off than hunter-gatherers and in which ways? Mm. And sort of re-examining a lot of the mythology um, or the, I hate to use the word mythology to uh, imply falsity, but, you know, the, the, the bias, the pro-status quo bias in examining hunter-gatherers. And I know so much of your work looks at those same questions. Can you... Uh, just talk about some of your studies, like the monopoly study. Like I have a whole section in civilized to death called rich asshole syndrome, where I argue that it's not just that assholes become rich because they're willing to cut corners that more ethical people aren't. It's also that, uh, wealth disparities force us to develop almost like a spiritual scar tissue that deadens us to the pain of other people to enable us to continue to live in this unnatural situation. I, I cited your monopoly study, your study of the expensive cars stopping less often than the, I mean, your work is so good at illuminating those things. I wonder if you could just des describe some of those studies, but also the greater sense that I have that you, a lot of your work is really um, very subversive. You're teaching at a major university, but you're you're questioning some of the fundamental principles of Western civilization. <laughs> wow, I should travel with you more often, Chris, because that's quite a and and congratulations on your book. I really like. I know about your first book, and I look forward to reading your next one too. Um, yeah, so you know, and 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 what a what a, an important summary. So um, you know it. It, uh, it begins, you know, the work begins with a um, really interesting thing that happened to me as a kid <clears throat> where, and I wrote about this at the end of this book, The Power Paradox, where um, I, my, I was living, it was 1970, and my mom got her PhD, and she was our family breadwinner, and she taught at Sacramento State University, um, big public university. And we moved from a middle-class neighborhood in Los Angeles, and because my parents were hippies, uh, which is why I'm subversive um, in part, uh, they, um, we moved to this town where we got five acres and a beat-up old house, and it was in one of the poorest towns in, um, 
in Northern California. Uh, and um, the kids I grew up in, you know, I was fifth grade when I started there. They just seemed like they were sick and had trouble concentrating and you go to their homes and, you know, sometimes it felt a little like Appalachia. Uh, I'm not sure they were eating well. A kid came over to our, uh, and played on our jump swing, our jump, our swing where you would jump off. My brother and I had done it a thousand times and he did it. And the second time he did it, his arm snapped in half. Um, and I was like, you know, I started to do this work on power that Chris is, and I'll get to it in a second. And, and it just pushed me backward. Like, why were all the kids I moved to suddenly like sick and not going to college and maybe not graduating and turning to opiates early and crystal meth and tough, right? And, and it's because of uh, capitalism and our society and rich assholes. Um, and, one, and then when I was teaching, uh, a paper came out in 1994 that showed that poor people die earlier of every disease uh, compared to wealthy people. And it's so striking. If I'm a seven on a 10-point scale and, and my neighbor's an eight, and we go to the same doctor and we eat the same food and we do the same exercise, he's going to live longer than me, right? Just by this sense of rank. And Chris, that led me to this work and the first thing that was striking, like when you study hunter-gatherer peoples who, with whom we evolved for 200,000 years, they didn't have rich assholes, right? They constrained them. They were much more egalitarian. Um, they, if you were grabbing too much food, they would, people would correct you, right? And, and really inequality in the United States really hits hard in the 70s and just explodes, right? So now we have... You know, I mean, Trump's family is the idea that Jared Kushner, <laughs> who bought his way in, his dad bought his way into Harvard, I'm not sure even we went to class, the idea that he would be making these decisions is offensive. Um, and so our job then was to, to really capture, like, how do, does wealth and inequality, like you're saying, Chris, does it produce assholes or unethical behavior? And my favorite study is the car study where I, I was biking home and coming through a four-way stop sign and this black Mercedes that was worth 150000 bucks, like rolls the stop sign at 25 miles an hour. You know, I'm going uphill, turns almost into me. We're like face to face. And he gets really mad at me. And I'm like, dude. Mm. I was following the law, man. You almost killed me. I'm on a bike and you're getting mad at me. So we did the car study. And what happens in that study is, <laughs> uh, and it's Paul Piff's genius, who is my collaborator, who's now a professor at Irvine. Um, we put an undergrad, everybody has car stories, right? And, and I'll talk about it in just a second, you know, and you're just like cars, by the way, like, People dying in cars, is, 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 it, over 100,000 people die each year, I think, in cars. A lot of people hurt their bodies in cars. We, it shortens our lives, traffic, et cetera, California. So we put an undergrad at the edge of a pedestrian zone in, yeah, near our Berkeley campus. And that uh, crosses the street. It's white stripes. It's California law. You have to stop, right? 
And we have another Berkeley undergrad hiding behind this bush. And they make sure that if a car is coming, they note what kind of car it is. And there's our other person like looking like they want to cross the pedestrian zone. And we just ask, do they stop? It's the law, right? 100% of drivers of poor cars stop. And once you get up to the fancy cars, BMW, like really expensive cars, 46% of the time they drive through the pedestrian zone, right? And I know that is it. <laughs> I can see you getting you're mad. Doing this, you're doing this study in Berkeley. So even yeah. the wealthy people in Berkeley are probably uh, consider themselves progressive. They've got their, you know, shopping bags in the back of the car. They recycle, right? Oh, yeah. Think it would be. I mean, if you did this study in, in uh, you know, Los Angeles, you know, Culver City, just some random uh, area, not Berkeley, I'll bet the, the percentages would be even more dramatic. Yeah, that's really cool. I had never, I had, no one's ever brought that up. That what about the Berkeley effect? I mean, it's even stronger in Berkeley where we're supposed to be progressive. And, uh, and, um, so I agree. And, and that was the tip of the iceberg. And so, you know, we did all these studies and, you know, you give, you give a, a well-to-do person at, they're playing a game as part of an experiment. This is my fa other favorite one. I love I that one. Yeah. yeah. They're playing this game. You press a button. It rolls a bunch of dice on a computer, and you get a score. And if you get a high score, you get to win some money. And, and so we keep track. We know what their score is going to be, and we find out, do they cheat? <laughs> Rich people are more likely to cheat to win a little bit of money. Now, think about that economically, which you may be like, you already got enough money. You don't need 20 bucks, you know, and you're cheating. Uh, so we did a lot of these studies. And, you know, I believe, um, I, wish I, I wish I would have known how to write this, you know. Um, I think this is one of the fundamental problems of our, our society right now is cheating, is, is corruption, is the gaming of the systems that most of us hope are fair, you know, and by rich people. And you can't. You know, the this has replicated in countries around the world. It has all kinds of other extensions. And I think it's a central problem in our country that is hard to fight. It's interesting that you brought up the 1970s. Um, there's a great documentary called Requiem for an American Dream. It's a oh, wow. Chomsky documentary. And he talks I, about how in the 60s you had this fiercely democratization. You know, you had a lot of young, typically apathetic people out in the streets demanding change. And um, Chomsky talks about how in the 1970s, one thing that he didn't predict was the blowback and deregulation from the establishment. You get into um, the savings and loans crises, the Reagan administration, and then all of a sudden you have much more inequality and that just continues to ramp up until today. You know, thank you for bringing that up. And I mean, part of what got me to social class and inequality was Chomsky and Marx and, and Thomas Piketty and Emmanuel Saz, his Berkeley collaborator. And, you know, Chris was heading towards one of the fallouts of this, right, which is how do we think about human beings and our contemporary world and what's our natural state? And part of my work is to call a lot of that into question, right, that, you know, rational choice theory and economics and Ronald Reagan and Milton Friedman would say greed is good. 
and we love competition and we just want as much for ourselves compared to other people. And there are dozens of studies that blow that to pieces, right? Um, that we want material goods and that's not a path to happiness. So the, this work on the rich asshole syndrome, which has been replicated in every kind of social behavior you would care about. One of my favorites is if you watch people at work, uh, well-to-do managers are more likely to swear at their colleagues and tell them their work is chicken shit than vice versa, than low, less you know, well-to-do uh, employees. It's part of a whole mix, an ideological mix that Chris was pointing to, and you nicely bring up, Kyle, of like, hey, let's have unfettered greed in capitalism. And that really was for a subset of people, and, and we know what it does to them. I think your microphone has slipped into your shirt. You might want to just. We're, <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Okay. There you go. <laughs> it's not terrible, but it was a little a little rub. Um, you, you know, you you're you're referring to Ayn Rand, probably. I, I know you've you've written about her a little bit. She's yeah. sort of like the, the supreme apologist for uh, this this kind of self. She wrote a book called In Defense of Selfishness, I think, or an essay. Um, I was briefly. I, you know, like a lot of people, I briefly sort of read some of her stuff in high school when I was convinced I'd never die and everyone should just look out for themselves. And my parents were paying all my bills. <laughs> and uh, I don't know. I think you and I are roughly the same age. Maybe did you were you into Rush at any at any point in your life? A little little flurry in my senior year in high school. <laughs> yeah, right. So Ayn Rand, like one of their records, Neil Parrott was reading Ayn Rand, and they, there are some songs that were sort of based on that. Um, but like Alan Greenspan was her acolyte, right? Like oh, yeah. he sat at her, yeah. literally sat at her feet, and then he ran the U.S. economy for twenty years. It's it's just incredible how that stuff works. Yeah, you know, and, and uh, Paul Ryan, right? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. For people who don't know who's Ayn Rand, and I wrote down a quote um, from her, which is, for any civilization to survive, it is the morality of altruism that men must reject. Yeah. Which yeah, is so the opposite Rand, of true. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's how we, it's why we're here today, is our cooperative tendencies. Yeah, you know, the, um, the, you know, Ayn Rand, very influential libertarian philosopher, kudos to her, um, shaped Greenspan, Reagan, um, you know, Dick Cheney, uh, Paul Ryan, Donald Trump is a fan on down the line. Um, and, you know, I, you know, the philosophy of freedom and self-expression and don't rely on other people, um, parts of it are great, right? And, and I try to always remember, you know, there are good sides to many things. Um, and the idea of freedom, and you know, it's interesting, Chris, like when you're 18 to really dwell in the philosophy of like, go out on your own, that's wonderful, right? That's American transcendentalism, it's Emerson, Thoreau. We need that, but it's a lie, you know? It is a lie to think that you make it on your own. Uh, it is a lie to think that we can reject altruism the people who do it are probably much more likely to be supported by governmental policies, you know, and, and resources. And I think COVID-19, which we're in the midst of, is, is revealing that. It's like a big x-ray that is saying, look at all the systems that allow my health to stay good uh, or me to do my work at home when the poorer person has to drive the bus and is more vulnerable to COVID. So, yeah, you know, and, and Chris, to your point, like, 
Qi is related to this set of ideas that humans are selfish, competitive, adversarial, and greedy. And that's our core motivation. And in my book, Born to be Good, and then all the science we do on the brain and genetics and behavior says about 40% of the time, we're ready to share everything, right? We will share 40% of a resource. Big parts of our brain help us do that. And it's good for your life expectancy and your reproductive opportunities. So I, if I had, if I were a different kind of scholar, I, I remember I was on vacation with a friend and I was like, the book I would love to write is how, you know, why Ayn Rand is the most stupid philosopher who's ever <laughs> So thank you for bringing that up. But I've not that uh, yeah. Well, that's me. I, I, my, both of my books are refutations of what I call the neo-Hobbesian perspective, right? Which Ayn Rand is obviously just a sort of modern uh, articulation of that. But that, that famous quote that life before the state was solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short yeah. is wrong, 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 wrong. It's wrong in every possible way. <laughs> and yet it's one of the most powerful lines in the English language. It's amazing. Do you ever you think really that the... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, it'd be interesting to take all these sayings that like the, the and just say, "Here's how it's all wrong." I mean, it'd be a, that'd be a neat book. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that's essentially civilized to death is organized that way. I, that's how okay. I introduce it. Like this book cool. is going to show you Hobbes was totally wrong. Um, but do you ever think that the utility of an idea is at least as determinative of its power and and ubiquity? as the, 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 you know, the, the clarity of thought. In other words, yeah. you know, Darwin wrote about love a lot more than he wrote about competition, but Darwinian competition has been co-opted as sort of a central justification for ruthless capitalism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's really, you know, I mean, I think that there are a couple of things to unpack there. One is their ideas are promoted through institutions that have ideologies. And Darwin did not, as you nicely just put it, Chris, he was not survival of the fittest. He was survival of the kindest. And that comes straight out of the descent of man from 1871. Uh, and no one knows that, right? And everybody thinks he said it's, it's survival of the superior. He didn't say that, you know? Um, and then the other thing you're right is, you know, um, there is interesting work about virality and virality tends to like fake news and, you know, and, and, you know, uh, gore and violence and stuff. And it, it's, it, we've, you know, the more dramatic, even untrue, disturbing kinds of claims can spread pretty powerfully. And, and we're at battle against that tendency, man, you make me worry now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's what happens when you hang out with Chris long Sorry. enough. Sorry, <laughs> your Pollyannish tendencies <laughs> blow away with the wind. I know. Yeah. Dang, we're in trouble. Iron Rand's gonna win. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you brought up fake news, and I, I uh, know that you've worked with a ton of different organizations and really promote the idea of subordinates being able to critique people in power. And journalism is one of those, um, you know, the, the estates that we have that is the mechanism of it is to be able to critique power. Um, yeah. Can you talk specifically about that as well as um, organizations that you've seen that really set up a structure where critiquing power is encouraged? 
Yeah, you know, it, um, whew, you know, uh, the, you know, um, when I wrote about power, um, probably guided by a lot of what Chris was hinting at, which is, you know, for several hundred thousand years, as we evolved in these small hunter-gatherer groups, power was really negotiated, right? And it was contested and distributed in a more horizontal way. That's Christopher Bohm reviewing 48 different societies. And one of the things that they were really sophisticated at is the critique of the powerful. And they would do it in telling jokes and gossiping, the, the informal structures by which we rein in the abuse of power. Hey, you know, some guy's bragging and you tease him about his bragging or he eats too much food and, and you tease him about that. And that really led to, alongside ethics and morals, like um, the, it, it is the foundation of critique, of social critique. And it was built into the structure that low power people who are always stronger in number than high power individuals could critique. And then you see that develop into journalism in the 18th century and uh, local newspapers who made fun of the wealthy, right, and so forth, um, and, and satire and Jonathan Swift and just everything good. And so to me, you know, that's one of the healthy markers of, of, of a healthy power society or a society that has healthy power. You know, you go to Russia or China, um, I was on the equivalent of 60 Minutes in China, which for, for at this conference, it was a joke. It was not even journalism, you know. So absolutely. And um, I think, you know, like when, um, you know, institutions rate, the U.S. is now a fragile democracy. It used to be a strong democracy. Um, and, and part of the reason is that, the degradation of journalism, right? And the attack on it. And that's one of the most scary things about Trump. So I think we, it's, it's foundational. Um, and it, it is at risk right now, you know, because of the digital technologies. Um, I worked, I consulted at Facebook for six years prior to the big blow up. Uh, and I was, I was struck at that, that they couldn't take a more, firm stand on, on bad rhetoric. <laughs> they just wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't take that step. Whereas it's funny, we all, like if we were all part of a group and there's a person over there that's spewing bile and fake news, we'd be like, Hey man, that's not true. You know? Uh, and we would negotiate that. Facebook didn't take that step, right? Which was too bad. So I think it's precious, Kyle, and I'm really glad you're bringing it up. And uh, do you have any examples of organizations that you've worked with that um, set up a structure where they really encourage critique or any kind of specific tactics that you've noticed as shining examples? Well, you know, it's so it's so interesting to me, and, and I would love it'd be. The, I mean, this is a, so the first, and and I don't want to you know is science. And what people don't realize is science goes through blind peer review. And what that means is every paper I publish gets, on average, 20 single-space pages of what an idiot I am and how wrong this idea is and what a simplistic, simple-minded idea. And, and it is 
we contest things, right? Hey, that's and what Chris does for me every day. <laughs> he is he just Mr. Blind a, it, 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 <laughs> He just does it in a verbal diatribe, not written word. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when you think about it, just think about that for a second, right? Like any idea you want to put out there, um, how much oversight that puts into your peers' hands. And, and, and that's why science is making a lot of progress. We're making extraordinary progress. And there are facts and there are things that we can trust, right? Um, medicine is another. Like when you really get down to, um, in particular, everyday healthcare, they evaluate each other's um, performance. Patients evaluate doctors, right? So there are a lot of data and separate opinions on how well you're doing thing. Uh, you go to other realms and you don't have that, right? Which is interesting. You don't have peer review. So, so I would cite those two. I think sports are interesting. Um, sports have a ton of data in them and they're getting better. You know, there's no, you know, uh, we have a ton of data. It's a fairly meritocratic system of wherever the best people will rise for the most part. Um, and performance is better and, and teams are better. So I, I think it's a great question to be thinking about with respect to our systems. It's very hard, as Michael Lewis has revealed, to get peer review of financial commodities. You know, it just they read my mind. I was really? going to ask you if you knew Michael Lewis, because I know he lives in Berkeley. I do. And he's you mentioned one of, the sports and the analysis. He's, he's great. He's fucking Yeah. Awesome. And when you ask him, like his analysis, I'm, he's a dear friend. And when you like when you read his book, The Big Short, and you're like, how do these people create these collateralized debt swaps <laughs> that bankrupt, that cost millions of jobs and hurt millions of families? And there was no peer review of those products. And had they been submitted to a group of people and say, is this a good thing? People are like, this is ridiculous, right? So it's interesting to think about where we, where peers can critique us and where they can. Well, also, I agree with what you said about science, but I, I, I think it's nuanced because if you submitted that to a bunch of investment uh, bankers, they would say, this is a great product. It takes money from a whole bunch of people and gives it to us. That's what we're in the business of doing. Perfect product. Right. And, and in medicine, so yeah. often, you know, yeah. a product is tested and it's no better than placebo. And so that information is never published I because agree. the research yeah. is sponsored by the company. So they don't publish it until they get the results they want. You know, yeah. it, it's thanks. like that money is corroding not only our political system, but even our scientific systems. Yeah. And, you know, thanks. Absolutely, Chris. And, you know, um, and you are nicely engaging in exactly what we're talking about, right? Which is let's, let's scrutinize ideas and claims with reason. So I just said science, but there are biases in scientific evaluation. There are hidden findings, et cetera. There's st probably status effects of, well, we treat women's papers differently than men's, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, medicine has tons of, you know, the pharmaceutical industry is shrouded in <laughs> hidden findings. And so, yeah. And, and the, you know, I, I don't know what you guys think, but like, I feel in some sense, while there's a lot of junk and fake news, at the same time, um, all of the digital exchange and flow of information, it, it allows for critiques, right, uh, that, that can make, you know, 
when I go give a public talk now, I've been told like somebody will tweet like, oh, the guy got it wrong. He, you know, Dacker got this wrong or whatever. So there is more opportunity for public scrutiny. I think the, ch- the challenge is what, what you're pointing to, which is it has to be done in principled fashion, you know, and, and that's where yeah. it's I think um, one of the, you know, Kyle referred to my sort of uh, uh, dark worldview uh, earlier, <laughs> which is, to read I mean, I'm civilized to death. Dude, yeah, you'll you'll weep. Um, but I, uh, you know, the way I see life, I'm sort of like having a really good time at the party on the Titanic as it's sinking. Right. But, uh, I'm still having fun. Right. Um, but I wonder what you think about, uh, to follow up on your point, I I think that podcasts are possibly, and this is self-serving, but I think they're possibly as impactful as the printing press, in the sense that, you know, we can talk to anybody we want who's willing to sit down and talk to us using any language we want and press a button and, you know, hundreds of thousands of people can listen to that or millions if Joe Rogan happens to be in the room. And uh, that's amazing. There's no there's no gatekeeper. There's nobody between us and the audience, uh, which I think is truly revolutionary. Yeah, no, it's, I think there's 700,000 podcasts in the United States. Um, and I think I, that would be a cool book, right? Because it is profoundly revolutionary in being local, right? Like big wave surfing is a spectacular phenomenon. It probably doesn't make the newspaper, you know, people are reporting on the local softball team scores, but not the big wave surfing score. Surfing Only know, if someone gets eaten by a shark. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's off the if radar. Joe Rogan's, if, if Joe Rogan's in the room for podcasting or if a shark is in the room for big wave surfing. <laughs> <laughs> so it has this wonderful local organic feel, and that's why it is the, you know, it's one of the most important things in journalism right now. It may probably the most important and for me, you know, we've got the science of happiness um, and podcast, which has done well. Uh, and what um, what's been exciting for me, you know, to your point, Chris, is like I've been teaching the science of happiness. I have my certain frustrations with it. It's not diverse. It doesn't deal with social justice. It doesn't mention Noam Chomsky like we did today. And I'm like, man, if I and I'm hearing it from young people. Uh, and I'm like, if I have this podcast, I'm going to have prisoners on, I'm going to have ex-prisoners, I'm going to have people who are junkies, et cetera, to get at the local kind of quality that, that, so I think, I think I, they are exciting and, uh, a great new venue. And it's an antidote to, to that plastification that we were talking about before. You know, I think a lot of people have grown up with everything being filtered and, test marketed and you know it's just so it reeks of of inauthenticity that if they hear somebody even if they disagree but they hear someone just giving it straight there the pendulum is starting to swing people are so hungry for that now i think yeah you know it's so funny my daughter who's just graduated from berkeley is 22 natalie and and you know she loves podcasts um and it's part of the podcast generation like young people and you have regular voices and grammatical problems and, you know, you know, just drama and so forth. And when she looks at, you know, the television and our talking heads, she's just like, 
you know, come on. So I hear you. Podcasts. I went. Yeah, here's to podcasts. Um, I wonder, just to follow up on this point you were making about, um, you know, skepticism and, and that Kyle was asking about daring to challenge power structures and so on. Yeah. Um, I, I wonder what you think about so-called conspiracy theories, flat earthers, anti-vaxxers, you know, all that kind of stuff. Because I, I find it very problematic because I applaud the skepticism you know what I mean? Like question Absolutely. what the government tells you, you know, the, the Gulf of Tonkin incident was bullshit. You know, a lot, all this stuff is bullshit. But then it, how do you I mean, are people still teaching critical thinking? Like, is, is there a mandatory critical thinking class at Berkeley? There's a lot of critical thinking at Berkeley, you know, and I think that, uh, you know, I think universities do a good job of that. Um the, one of my favorite findings in social science is called the Flynn effect, which is people are getting smarter um, compared to where we were. In terms of handling information, we may not be living as well, uh, but we know how to handle information better. Knowledge is getting better. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm totally with you, Chris, and we should go have a beer sometime, man, because, you know, I grew up, I grew up skeptical of I read Noam Chomsky you know, and then, and our mainstream media, even the hallowed New York Times, has tons of ideological bias. Right? Good luck ever reading a pro-Palestinian piece in that. And there, you know, I grew up, uh, thanks to my mom, very skeptical of pharmaceuticals, um, and she was right. The SSRIs, there are a lot of data that uh, call into question pharmaceutical approaches to mental health, um, and now we have a weird convergence of that in the anti-vaxxers, which is don't trust government, don't trust mainstream portrayals of vaccines. And, and I hope, I hope the broader public will, will have independent science like you suggest, and we'll see where it lands. Right. Cause, cause probably we need the vaccines and uh, yeah, no. So it's, it's just fascinating right now that, the liberal critique of 30 years ago, Noam Chomsky, you know, Vietnam and protests and so and corporate greed and so forth has now been turned upon <laughs> uh, political leaders by Trump supporters. <laughs> you know, I've even thought of it in terms of economics. Um, I haven't I haven't talked about this yet on the podcast, but I was thinking recently how, you know, there's a very strong strain of do your own thing in the hippie movement, right? Like yeah. if it feels good, do oh. it. I remember a t-shirt with a bear rubbing his back on a tree and it said, if it feels good, do it. And you know, there's this all like, Hey man, I'm an individual. I'm going to do what's good for me. Look out for number one, you know, all these slogans from back in the late sixties, early seventies. And like that sort of transformed into Reaganite trickle down economics, you know, get the government off my back. It's strange how like the far left and the far right kind of meet somewhere in there. You know, man. So and I hate I, I'm going to use the word, but patriarchy. Right. And they're like feminist critiques of the 70s. Ruth Rosen, in particular, who's a professor at Davis, like a lot of the 60s kind of rebuilt patriarchy and men had nice positions they had more sexual freedom. Right. They had women bringing coffee to them. They were the voices in the movements. Uh, and there was a patriarchal dimension to it outside of the feminist movement. 
of Gloria Steinem and Betty Friedan and others. And, um, and it, it nicely transported right over to Reagan. It felt the same. Mm. Right. So yeah, really interesting. Really cool. Good. You talk. Yeah. Can you talk about, um, the role that, um, equal rights between women and men have in healthy societies um, yeah. historically. And just yeah. watch your microphone because it's kind of scratching up against your shirt a little bit. Okay. Sorry. My apologies. I was getting way too comfortable uh, <laughs> lounging into <laughs> the observations. I know. <laughs> um, wow. We I, should all be in hammocks really right now. You know, <laughs> we should do a hammock podcast together. <laughs> I'm not very new. I've got a theory. I don't know if you're, I don't mean to detract, uh, to jump in here, but uh, my theory is that the hammock is the first human invention. It's, it's the <laughs> first human technology because chimps and bonobos both weave branches together and sleep in them every night, right? Up above the ground, keep away from predators and so on that, you know, you're waving in the breeze. Wow. So I am, my, my whole philosophy of life goes back to the hammock. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to order one right now. Um, <laughs> Let us send you one. Swag. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Big swag for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting, Kyle. So I, um, you know, as you guys nicely um, mentioned, I did a lot of work on the abuse of power and class and inequality. Uh, wrote this book, The Power Paradox. It summed it up. And about when The Power Paradox was published, um, Weinstein happened, uh, the Me Too movement, which I got involved in, I wrote and then got connected to women's groups. Um, and then the deeper question surfaced around that, which is, well, will organizations or will a nation uh, or will a, a community abuse power uh, depending on who's in charge, right? If it's a man or, or a greater representation of women. Uh, and what's interesting, and Hannah Rosen has written a little bit about this, but, it, but this, is, this is one of the hottest topics in power, which is that women have more power now societally than they've had in 15,000 years. And you just go from the big transition to settlements, which became patriarchal 12,000 years ago, through time that, you know, 30% of governors are women. The last election had the most women elected to Congress in history, I think. Um, you know, female vice president candidates, et cetera, re leading organizations. The one place where they're not uh, effectively represented is, is in the super high echelons of CEOs and hedge funds. But middle level managers, lawyers, doctors, it's all rising. And that begs the question of what happens with respect to power and the abuse of power. And some of the data suggests that with more women you and the greater equal distribution of power, you have less abuse. Um, there is a big McKinsey study and a big study by Credit Suisse looking at governments and companies with more women on boards, and they, they don't abuse power to the, quite the same extent. They take care of labor. So a lot of the income issues right now in the United States probably would be less extreme if women were making those decisions. So a little bit of hope. Uh, in this this uh, civilized to death world, do you think that the structures and the flow of power as they're established in corporations and and many governments 
are themselves reflective of patriarchy and, and the male. I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think that men and women wield and understand power in different ways? And therefore, is it sufficient to have women in these positions? Because when I was writing Sex of Dawn, I, I was addressing the, the fact that most anthropologists would say there has never been a matriarchy. Yeah. Right. I was I was addressing the the idea that hunter gatherer men and women were both autonomous and had similar levels of power within the society. Right. And a lot of uh, mainstream theorists would say, but then why is there no matriarchy? And what I found was, well, there are societies in which property is passed from mother to daughter and women's voices are necessary to any decision. But that women, a matriarchy doesn't look like a patriarchy in the mirror. It's not a, you know, a flipped you don't have a woman with her her high heel on a man's throat the way you have men, you know, wielding power over women. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> so great to hear you say that, because um, coming out, you know, I think Trump shocked a lot of people, you know, uh, not, you know, people who are reading the tea leaves in the Midwest. But and, you know, you know, there's been endless analysis of him. Uh and his power and wow, you know, just kind of this bald self-interest and, you know, kind of Machiavellian, like just taking people down, et cetera. Uh, and coming out of that election, um, we, to answer your question, Chris, we developed, uh, people hadn't studied it rigorously and scientifically. There had been certain kinds of cultural analysis, but it hadn't really been addressed with data, if you will. And We've got a measure of like, how do you, what do you think about power and how do you use it? And there's more of a horizontalist approach of like, it's about collaboration and, you know, bi-directionality and it's distributed. And then there's the top down, like it's about force and coercion and, and violence. And men are way more likely to adhere to that second model of power, right? That international diplo diplomacy is weak. You got to use force. Fathers should really rule the family. Teachers are okay to spank the kids, et cetera. Uh, and women are more likely to be more horizontal, right, and, and collaborative. So I think it's profound. And, and, and in the next 30 years, we'll see what happens to organizations because women are starting to run them. Do you, th do you think those differences are innate or, or culturally indoctrinated? I, you know, oh, man. That's a tough one. <laughs> um, I yeah. think, you know, there are certain, you know, when, you know, my last read of the violence literature, maybe, you know, more up to date data, Chris and Kyle, like 85, 90% of violence is male, you know, it's, and so you got to social relationships deal with that if you're a male. And, and so you learn how to use violence for power and counteract it. And, you know, women, you know, the, there are cool data showing with birth, men have the neurophysiology of connection, uh, but it's very pronounced in women for a year or two of oxytocin and breastfeeding and all that comes with that. That's a, you know, we don't like to say, but that is a very significant event uh, that shifts your body. So, you know, I'd say part of, a you mentioned a chunk Sorry, is nature. Ahead. A chunk is nature. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. You mentioned Christopher Bohm's work earlier, Hierarchy in the Forest is, is yeah. probably his best known book. Um, what I love about that is that he 
He does not say that humans are not hierarchical. He says that we developed very complex mechanisms for counteracting that tendency. Yeah. And most of those uh, mechanisms involve men uh, because men are more likely, I think, innately to try to take over and and, uh, inflict coercive power on others. And so, uh, yeah, people who are interested in those issues should really check his work out. He's yeah. And thanks for bringing that up, Chris, because it's subtle work, right? We often think of like power is either good or bad, right? Or hierarchies either exist or don't exist. There are hierarchies everywhere, right? That's a raw fact of social life. And what he says is just like you're saying, like healthy hierarchies are have these dynamic tensions, right? And bi-directional negotiations. So, here's and on the Bowen. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And Franz Duval, I'm sure yeah. you're familiar with his work, yeah. showing that the impulse toward justice and the sort of aversion of injustice is something that's common to, uh, to all social primates. Yeah. So it's it's not something that's imposed by government. It comes out of us innately. Absolutely. Great. I love Franz. Taka, this is my last question, then I'll let Chris wrap it up. But um, in regards to nuance and... Um, teaching the next generation more compassion. Um, You talk about the benefits of exposing kids to suffering, which is um, something that people might, you know, at first glance, not think is a good thing to do. Um, Can you dig into that a little bit more? Yeah. Wow. I, I appreciate um, all of these questions and the scholarship behind them. And uh, yeah, you know, so the, as we, you know, my lab, I was sitting on a, a panel, I was lucky enough to have this experience with His Holiness the Dalai Lama, um, and he said, uh, just in a throwaway statement, compassion is our natural state. Um, and boy, does that fly in the face of Ayn Rand, whom we talked about earlier. We got to reject compassion and altruism. And I'm a scientist, and I heard that statement in 2003, I think. And I was like, I got to go after that with neurophysiology and science. And so we started to study human compassion in the, in the lab. And when you study compassion in the lab, you show people images of suffering, right? Starving children, uh, pets that are dying, kids with cancer, classic stuff, right? And what we found, and this is to your first point, I, I mean, as we started to summarize this literature on compassion, parts of your prefrontal cortex are activated. It activates the vagus nerve, uh, which makes you feel good and strong and connected. It activates oxytocin release. Uh, it has a gene that is related to oxytocin. Um, it makes you feel strong. It makes you want to assist others. It makes you be courageous. These are all peer-reviewed scientific findings of what happens when I'm exposed to suffering. Uh, is Just like we talked about earlier, how our capacity for awe is awakened when we encounter dying, right? It's horrific, but we, our imagination gets going. And in the case of compassion, we want to make things better. Um, that science complemented just my everyday experience, like around the veterans, right, that when they were exposed to the most profound suffering I've heard of, uh, watching 
a bomb blow up a buddy or a school kid, you know, watching the body die, they wanted to do better, right? They wanted to do things that were good for the world, just very routinely. And, and that led me to this kind of statement, like, you know, maybe we shield our kids from suffering, which is good, but maybe in their lives, they need to figure out what part of suffering they want to help, right? Uh, and I believe that to be true. And, you know, when I say goodbye to my Berkeley undergrads, one of the things I say is like, find the form of suffering or injustice that you want to work on. Because Chris cites the work, Franz Duval, we get agitated when there's suffering and harm in others and injustice. We want to fix it. So find one. Uh, for me, it was, you know, veterans or getting into prisons and, and working with those guys and, and go get it, you know. And a lot of the, you know, data suggests that's good news for people. And it's counterintuitive. It's painful for the eyes, but it's good for our souls. I read some research, it may have even been your research, um, showing that the number one predictor of life satisfaction and longevity is whether or not you feel that you're embedded in a caring community. Yeah. I mean, when I, you know, human happiness, uh, being in a caring community gives you 10 years of life expectancy. <laughs> Older people who volunteer are much less likely to die, right? I mean, it, there are just so many findings on this that, that, and this is where I'm so grateful that you guys brought up Ayn Rand and Milton Friedman and this horseshit of, you know, just go out and maximize self-interest because it countervails that. And that's, that's a malaise, right? That is a, a delusion that's been harmful to our society. Listen, we would love to dominate the rest of your uh, afternoon, but and vice uh, versa. being cooperative. <laughs> We'd like to be egalitarian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I just I want to thank you so much for doing this. And I want to thank Kyle so much for letting me uh, kind of horn in here because I've been doing the podcast a lot longer than he has. And when he mentioned that he had you as a guest, I, I'm sure he saw a look go over my face like, what the fuck? How did you get that guy? <laughs> I, <laughs> that, it's fantastic. So thank Aww. both of you for letting me sit in on this. No, well, I love your writing. Tipping it up in a, very, in, yeah. in a very laissez-faire way as well. Like, yeah, you know, I just got this guy on the podcast. He's like, what? I wrote about this guy in both my books. You can't use my yeah. Wi-Fi if I'm not involved. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. Well, let's do it again. Well, hey, I would love to. Yeah. Well, hey, where can people check out your work and uh, what book, what books should they buy of yours? Yeah. So, so number one is greatergood.berkeley.edu, uh, which is all things greater good and a lot of the science. Then my books are The Power Paradox, uh, which we've talked about in Born to be Good. And then I have a new book on awe. And Kyle, the other thing I'll just say is, as you know, I'm um, writing a book about awe have a lot of admiration for surfers, uh, have dear friends who are surfers, daughters a surfer. And if you have listeners who want to send me their stories of awe on big waves, um, I'm collecting stories of awe from around the world. Uh, and they've been amazing. So send them my way at keltner at berkeley.edu.
Easy. And one way that I um, uh, always get guests that are far out of my league is I offer a surf lesson to each guest. So right on. if you or anyone in your family ever want to come down to Santa Cruz and okay. uh, get a surf lesson, offers okay. open. You'll see us. That sounds great. That's our show, everybody. I'm going to play out the song called The Mill by The Great Apes. And if you want to listen to more of their music, you can check it out in the description below. If you are somewhere cool right now, bust out your phone and record a few seconds of audio. Don't overthink it. Try and keep it under a minute. Let me know who you are, some details about your surroundings, some wisdom for the crew, and I'd love to play it at the beginning of this podcast. Info at kyle.surf. If you're a musician, that's also where you can send me music, and I will link to your band page in the show notes below. Don't forget, we have a monthly box of goodies subscription where I send you a book that I love, as well as a CBD tincture, a potent tincture of vanilla CBD. I use this stuff every night. It helps me sleep, helps me after workouts. Um, and you can get the CBD as well as the book at a discount on my website, kyle.surf, or just click the link below. If you're looking to support this podcast and get more reading in your life, this is a good way to do it. We also have a book club started. It's a WhatsApp group message. Um, sometimes the author joins in if I can cajole them into it where they can answer questions for you about the book. Last month, it was Denale by Ben Moon. We got a fun little uh, exchange going there. And this month, it is Dress Your, Dress Your Family in Corduroy and Denim by David Sedaris. Um, he's not in the WhatsApp group. Can't make that promise. But it's a damn good book, and you get that with CBD over at my website, kyle.surf. And thank you also to the Nell Newman Foundation for supporting each and every one of these podcasts. Check out more of the work that the Nell Newman Foundation does in the description below if you're looking to volunteer. The organizations that the Nell Newman Foundation supports are a great place to start. That's it for now. Get outside, get in the water, whatever body of water you are closest to. And I will see you all very soon. Hope you enjoy this song called The Mill by The Great Apes. Drift!